Hello, folks. Welcome to Kudlow. I'm Larry Kudlow. All right, tonight we're going to take another look at the Donald Trump political persecution in the courtroom and the incredibly insidious terms of finance that he needs to pass even before he gets to appeal to the New York appellate court. It's an unbelievable story of political persecution. We're going to also look at New York City. Heck, give everybody a debit card. Illegal immigrants will have a debit card that could come to two and a half billion dollars or more over a period of time. It's most remarkable. Heck, you know, we should give out debit cards to everybody so they can all come from all around the world. And there'll be no end to it. And uh, World Bank president, former World Bank president David Malpass, going to respond to the Biden administration. The Bidens say big government spending and big government socialism is giving us a soft landing. I don't think so. Neither does Mr. Malpass. And is the United States selling out Israel in the U.N.? There's a tough one. Meanwhile, let's begin with some of the details of this uh, Trump prosecution, as I call it. Persecution might be better. Let's go straight to our own Kelly O'Grady, who is live from Trump Tower in New York City. Kelly, what you got? Well, Larry, the 30-day deadline to pay that monster fine from Friday's ruling is fast approaching. Now, the former president's legal team has confirmed he will appeal, but it is not going to be cheap. So all in, he is looking at $450 million if you include interest. For an appeal, he would actually need to put up that full cash amount in an escrow account, or he could post a bond, which would allow him to use a mix of cash and assets. There's growing speculation he could even have to sell some of his New York properties to flip the bill for that. So I'm talking properties like Trump Tower, worth roughly $300 million, maybe Trump International. If he can't cobble together those funds, the state could seize the properties, sell them for pennies on the dollar, uh, though that would be in a non-appeal scenario. Now, Trump's legal team insists he does have the cash on hand to meet that deadline. So going forward, legal experts tell me there are clear arguments here for an appeal. For example, the law Trump was found guilty of violating. In past cases, traditionally, we've seen testimony from victims describing their harm here there was none. One thing to keep an eye on, Larry, uh, the judge reserved the right to put dissolving Trump's businesses back on the table pending the investigation of a court-appointed monitor, uh, certainly raising questions about how objective that investigation will be. Back to you. All right. Thanks very much, Kelly O'Grady. My quick take on this, maybe not so quick, because this is a brutal, devastating story. Look, first, as any common sense person knows, the Letitia James, Arthur Engeron ruling against former President Trump was nothing more than political persecution. And as Byron York wrote today, and Byron's going to be with us in just a few moments, the New York State Attorney General James has been campaigning for years to bring financial and political ruin on President Trump. Hear some of it for yourself. By the way, why isn't that fomenting insurrection? This, by the way, was back in 2018. And uh, James found her cat's paw in this Judge Engeron, who was basically a Democratic clubhouse politician in New York. That's all he is. Meanwhile, regarding the facts of the case, there were no victims, no damages, no consumer complaints. There were satisfied banks and other lenders who made a ton of money doing business with the Trump organization. Mr. Trump hired tens of thousands of people 
and paid over $300 million in taxes to the city and state of New York over time. And he virtually changed the skyline of the city. He once rebuilt what's called the Woolman Skating Rink in Central Park. New York politicians had spent years failing to do it. And then Mr. Trump gave great happiness to parents and their kids all over the city in the process. But as these left-wing Democrats weaponized their arsenal of judicial power, they have imposed draconian conditions even on President Trump's appeal process. As a non-lawyer, my understanding is, in order to get to the New York appellate court, Mr. Trump must post some kind of guaranteed surety bond in order to cover payment if the trial judgment was ever affirmed. Now, stay with me on this, folks. This would be a bond secured with collateral. Collateral could be cash, letters of credit from banks, or other investment-type assets, including real estate. Essentially, bear, stay with me on this, one party has to guarantee another party's obligation to a third party, making this potentially even more difficult. In other words, one party has to guarantee Mr. Trump's obligation to the satisfaction of the court in order to get it into the Court of Appeals. The Engeron decision, by the way, bans any borrowing from New York banks. That makes it even tougher. I don't know if that allows insurance companies or not to guarantee the bond. I just don't know. The sum total here could be up to 400 million bucks, including interest. And then presumably, the money for the bond will be deposited to the court and held in escrow pending the actual appeal. All right. These hyperpunitive conditions reveal again the nature of the political prosecution and persecution the New York Democrats are inflicting on Trump. There is no proportionality to what this weaponized court has done. That's why eminent jurist Jonathan Turley has called this whole process insidious. Where exactly did this number, 355 million plus another 100 million for interest rates, where did it come from? Nobody knows. It's arbitrary. It could have well come from the White House. It could have well come from the Oval Office, where Biden and his cronies would love to throw Trump in jail for 700 years, take his way as businesses, rob him of all his money. They would love to do this. Political prosecution, Soviet style, is what this really is. Of course, the decision like this will deter or prevent businesses from coming into New York City or state. I know that. This will stop people from coming here. That's an easy one. But where's the free choice? Where is President Trump's free choice? Where is President Trump's freedom? Freedom to start a business. Freedom to run a business. Freedom to succeed in business. Freedom to spread prosperity everywhere he goes. And where is President Trump's right to free speech, his First Amendment rights? Where is Donald Trump's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Certainly not in the Letitia James, Arthur Enger on courtroom. Ever. And that's my riff. All right, that is my riff. All right, we'll talk some, some more about this. Let's bring in Byron York, Washington Examiner, Chief Political Correspondent, Fox News Contributor. You know, Byron, you wrote a beautiful column today. I'm so happy we could get you on the show to talk about this. Uh, you even got into some of the details. I mean, the financial details here, they're, they're difficult details. And 
uh, we probably can't answer them all. I tried to lay them out in my riff. But your point is, this is just, this is just politics. This is just weaponization. And I think, Brian, I mean, let me ask you, politically, you're a political analyst, expert analyst. When people look at this, what do you think they think? Ordinary people, people that may not like Trump, people that won't even vote for Trump. What could they possibly think watching this? Well, as you know, the most uh, aggressive anti-Trumpers have said for years that Donald Trump has to be held accountable for whatever it is he has done. Uh, and this is really uh, Letitia James' con contribution to that. You played that sound of her pledging to bring down Trump. I mean, that was her campaign platform, to bring down Trump. And by the way, she's the attorney general. She could have indicted the former president, but wasn't able to get a charge together uh, on this evidence, and the, federal, the feds couldn't do, couldn't do that either. So she files this lawsuit to try to bankrupt and destroy the former president's financial empire. And as you were saying, this, this verdict is a real step toward that. And by the way, there was no jury in this case. It was Judge Ingeron's decision and his alone. And he explains in the decision that the law did not give Trump a right to a jury trial. So it's not like his lawyers made any mistake and forgot to ask for a jury trial. Uh, the law did not allow Trump a jury trial in this case. You know, that's one reason, Byron. First of all, it's a very important point uh, that you make. And second of all, it's, it's why I've raised the point here. You know, where's Trump's free speech? Where's his right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Where's his right to constitutional rights? They wouldn't even let a jury trial here. And as you know, the judge made up his mind, you know, before. This was effectively a show trial. The judge had made up yeah. his mind and told yeah. everybody before. And as I think you also know, in, in New York, the way it works, you know, the state Supreme Court is not a high-level court. It's a lower-level court. There are no primaries. Republicans don't run anymore. The judges are picked by Democratic clubhouses, in effect, as Engeron was years ago. So what kind of democracy is this? What kind of legal system is this? And that's why I ask folks looking at this, uh, if they pay any attention to it at all, have to walk away figuring out Trump has been railroaded big time. What was extraordinary um, about this is, you know, Trump was found guilty of overvaluing his properties. Uh, and what was interesting is in the decision, Judge Ingeron says that Trump showed absolutely no contrition. He never said he mm. was sorry or he, mm. he erred or it was at fault. And then Judge Ingeron said, but, you know, overvaluing the properties to save money uh, is a venial sin. It's not a mortal sin. Mm. Trump didn't kill anybody. He didn't uh, commit arson. He's not Bernie Madoff. The judge specifically said that. And then the judge applied a, a near-death penalty uh, penalty to Trump. And, you know, one, one thing that's interesting, you were discussing earlier, with this maybe $450 million judgment, Trump has to come up with the money just to appeal. Yes. Okay, so you're convicted of yes. something, for example, and you have to sell your house to get the money to be able to appeal, and then you win the appeal, but your house is gone. So uh, this, this is a real problem for Trump now. Yeah, I mean, let's bring in the great Jonathan Terrell, who's been discoursing about this. Uh, and you called it Jonathan Insidious from, let me put in, George Washington University and Fox a legal contributor, uh, just all around a hero guy. You've been working hard. But, you know, Jonathan, you, 
how you have to you have to basically put your life up everything you did you're building i don't even know you maybe you could tell me legally can insurance companies operating in new york can they guarantee this bond this surety bond that may have to be guaranteed before it gets to the court of appeals and the appellate court i mean to say it's not fair is almost beside the point to say it's politically driven, however, I think is closer to the point. But now you tell me the legal point. He can't go to New York banks. Can he go to New York insurance companies? Or who's going to put up this bond? Yeah, that's a very good question because he's barred from doing business in New York. Uh, you know, there's two issues here. One is he can bring up the cash, uh, which is going to be obviously quite difficult. Or he can seek a bond. If he does get a bond, it'll come at a premium cost, which means that even if he prevails, it will cost him millions and millions of dollars uh, just to get that bond. He could go to the trial court or the court of appeals and ask for a waiver uh, from the bonding or deposit requirement. Uh, but in the end, it just adds to this rather awful all, the rather awful optics. Uh, you have this use of a uh, statute in a way that's never been done before. Uh, the imposition of what amounts to $455 million, uh, on, even though there were no victims that lost a single penny. And then in order to appeal that, to just get someone to look at the decision of this one judge, uh, you have to produce... The, is something that's equivalent to the GNP of a small nation. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, where'd that number come from? 355 plus 10 percent interest, 455. Where'd that number come from? Where's the, well, heavens it, forbid, the word yeah. proportionality? But it's proportionate to what? Nobody lost money here. Well, when you drill down on this opinion, uh, you hit an air pocket. Uh, there's not a lot there. You know, he basically highballed every possible figure he could find. But much of it is speculative. For example, the court says, you know, if he had revealed uh, the true information, the bank would have required more difficult terms and cost him more money and had higher interest rates. That's not at all clear. Mm. I mean, the, the Trump organization was famous for squeezing banks precisely because they were, as the witnesses described, a whale client. The, you know, the banks themselves said, no, we made a lot of money on this and we wanted more business from Trump. So a lot of this uh, is rather speculative. Mm. Yeah, that's what I couldn't figure either. Byron, um, what's the, what are the politics here? How does this impact the presidential race? Well, this is one of those cases that Republicans have just completely rejected as uh, an unfair targeting of the former president. So it, it affects him not at all uh, in the Republican primary, uh, except to the effect that it adds his support to that extent that it adds to his support. So it just doesn't change anything. As far as the, the resistance or anti-Trumpers are concerned, they're basically adding this $450 million um, penalty to the $83 million penalty from the second E. Jean Carroll case to the $5 million penalty from the first E. Jean Carroll case and say, and, uh, and kind of high-fiving each other that so far uh, this lawfare has caused, cost Trump more than a half billion dollars. And uh, here again, the, the idea is to bring him down. The uh, idea of the actual prosecutors, uh, Alvin Bragg in um, 
New York, Fannie Willis in Georgia, and Jack Smith in the two federal cases is to actually put him in jail. Uh, and that story starts on March 25th with the uh, criminal trial in New York. Um, Jonathan Turley, just last thought. Uh, this will sound political, but it's not meant to be political, political. What I want to ask you is, look, New York is a one-horse town. It's a Democratic town. Um, there's only probably 13 Republicans left in Manhattan. Uh, I know everyone and their cell phone number. So we'll just put that aside for a minute. But there's something wrong with a system where you... Judges get elected at a fairly local level, essentially by clubhouses. Now, if it were a Republican city like this and it was Republican clubhouses, I'd probably like that outcome more, Jonathan, but I would probably still ask the same question. How can this be a good system? It is so predicated on political bias and essentially, you know, these are clubhouses. People come, non-lawyers, they vote, let's endorse so-and-so. He has no opposition in the primary, and you get an Arthur Engeron and you get a judicial system like this. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not asking you to choose sides. I'm asking you more of a constitutionalist process question. There's got to be a better way here. I think there is a better way. You know, the problem is that New York was always democratic. Uh, it's always had its problems. It's had its avenging district attorneys. But what it also had was the premier corporate law system. Right. That is, not only was it the center of business, it was the center of business law. And that has been shattered here. So a lot of businesses could put up with a lot of the nonsense, the political rhetoric, the eat the rich campaigns, because they could rely on this legal system. That's gone now. Yeah. I mean, the face of the New York corporate law system is now Letitia James. And that's a face that launched a thousand ships towards Florida. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, why would Trump or other companies stick around to see who's going to be the next target? Well put, Jonathan Charlie. Well put. You're exactly right. Uh, Byron York, uh, thank you ever so much. Great column today. We'll see how this stuff plays out. Thank you, you know? Larry. We'll, play, we'll see how it plays out. Hard to predict. Anyway, folks, uh, moving on for the Cudlow Show. I got one for you. Debit cards. New York City, debit cards for illegal immigration. Right? Debit cards. I mean, is there a better invitation? Uh, one expert suggested it's going to cost $2.5 billion. Okay? This is for illegals to reward them for coming to New York. How about that? Debit cards. I like a new debit card. And we're going to talk about it with Fox News national correspondent Grip Jenkins, who's been covering immigration forever. And, folks... Remember, we're here. You can catch Cudlow Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. every day, right here. Fox Business. And if for some crazy reason you can't get us, just text your favorite nine-year-old, and she will show you how to DVR the show. You might have to give her a debit card, but she'll be a legal debit card. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. All right, back to the migrant story. You know what? It's not just Mexico. Migrants from countries like China, Kazakhstan, Syria, they're flooding into our country with no end in sight. Fox News' Bill Malugin on the ground in Jacumba, California with more. Bill, great story. 
Larry, the demographics of the people showing up here in Hakumba are wild. I'd never met anybody from Kazakhstan or Kyrgyzstan in my entire life before. Then yesterday, a few of them climb over a mountain next to me, walk down here to this camp and start chatting with us. That's just how it is out here in San Diego County. Uh, take a look at this video our team shot earlier today via drone. Another group that crossed illegally on the other side of town in Hakumba. Uh, most of them single adults really from all around the world. The San Diego sector seeing an average of more than a thousand illegal crossings per day. A lot of these folks were from Asia. Take a listen. Where are you from? India. India. China. China. Georgia. 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 Where are you from? India. India. China. China. Ma'am, where are you from? China. 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 Yeah. China. Yeah. China. 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 Yes. Yes. China. Georgia. China. 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 And then take a look at this video. Same group, a woman collapsed or fainted as she was waiting to get processed uh, by Border Patrol. You see her go down. Uh, Border Patrol rushed over to help her. She ended up getting taken away in an ambulance, uh, fully alert, fully conscious. No clue what her medical condition was there, but regardless of what it was, uh, taxpayers out here will be uh, on the hook for whatever that medical bill is. And back out here, Larry, the number of Chinese showing up down here is just remarkable. We had more than 200 yesterday alone, more than 20,000 since October. And just the other day, colleague Griff Jenkins talked to three guys from Syria who showed up here. So again, we're getting a mixed bag from all around the world. We're not seeing anybody from those Northern Triangle countries down here uh, that the administration is so focused on when it comes to the so-called root causes. We'll send it back to you. Yeah, the root causes. You know, I, I say to Bill, I say to you, and Griff is sitting next to me here on set, uh, saintly wife and I lived in San Diego for a while. We never met anybody from Kazakhstan or China or India or any of these <laughs> exotic places. So I don't get it. Yeah. Don't know where to laugh or cry. Bill Malugin, you always do such great stuff. Thank you ever so much for helping out. For more, let's bring in the aforementioned Griff Jenkins, Fox News national correspondent. Uh, Griff, besides your um, widespread acquaintanceship in, in Kazakhstan, <laughs> what do you? You got these cards you're showing me. I don't know if you can show it up to the camera. These were remain yeah. in Mexico cards that well, you found on the ground. So yeah, and I can kind of hold it up. You know, you can get the idea. It's a temporary visa from Mexico, and in that very spot where Bill's doing great reporting, I was just there for the past week in Hakumba, literally right in that area. The Chinese migrants, these are all Chinese IDs, they come across and they immediately discard it because they don't want the U.S. officials, Larry, to know that they have some uh, temporary security, some temporary status legally in Mexico because our officials might say you should wait there because you can apply for asylum there. They want to be in the U.S. That's the plan. This, they have no interest in being in war. This or was Tijuana. the legacy of Trump's remain in Mexico. So in remain effect. in Mexico worked. And, right. and President Biden could, by executive fiat, Try and do something similar. They're going to need to call it something different because they don't like sure, the political. But sure. as long as you make these migrants from all over the world, and honest to God, it's like a U.N. conference being out there. I had Afghanistan, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Syria, along with the Chinese from all over. I had a guy from um, Africa, from Liberia. 
uh, Cameroon. It's it's unbelievable. And many of them are flying in, Larry. If you look closely at these videos that Bill's showing, you will see these Chinese, very clean dressed, not dirty. They didn't go through a Panamanian jungle to get here and then all the way through Central America and Southern Mexico. They flew right into Tijuana and walked across. I've seen them carrying stroller, uh, you know, roller bags like you would see at the airport. But the numbers, and I just I don't want to go on too long here, but the numbers that Bill was mentioning, 20,000 plus since the beginning of the fiscal year of just Chinese migrants coming across our southwest border. More than 90% of them are in that San Diego sector. Now, if you look back at fiscal year 2021, there were a total of 450 total migrants. I looked back at the three passing, the the last 72 hours in just Hakumba Mm -hmm. in the San Diego sector, there have been 452. So in three days, in the past three days, we've had more Chinese nationals legally crossing than the entire fiscal year of 2021. Sure. So can I ask a question? You know, the the focus of this story has shifted to San Diego, apparently. Right. Is part of this because uh, the barbed wire in Texas, the barriers they're putting up in Texas are working? You bet. Heaven forbid that I could use the word wall, but I'm happy. You want barbed wire or chicken wire or whatever the hell wire? It's working. Well, and you've got, is there a lesson there? There's some cooperation from Mexico. And there's what Governor Abbott's doing. And the number one comment that I got from Hakumba residents mm-hmm. that live there, that have these migrants coming across, they said, man, I sure am impressed on what Abbott did with the shipping containers and the wire and Texas DPS hardening their border. But you look at those shots where Malusian is, it's wide open. Governor Newsom's not down there. Mm-hmm. And the difference, too, in California that's compounding this, aside from the national security risk, because I did speak to three Syrians, that's a state sponsor of terror. But you have uh, uh, illegal immigrants now get free health care in California since January 1st. So free health care in the entire state of California is a sanctuary state. So once they get here, they're going to be protected. Heck, uh, I'm surprised they haven't given them debit cards yet in California. They'll probably work on that. When I see that story here in New York. A couple three billion dollars worth and probably no end to it. It's an an entitlement that will go on forever. There's no greater incentive. Larry, if I had a stray dog show up in my back door tomorrow and I cooked it a steak, guess what? He's coming back back with 10 of his friends tomorrow. And we both love dogs. But the fact is you make a very important point. It's called the incentive system. And we want to keep that border open. Griff Jenkins, the best of the best. Let's stay away from this. Thank you, Larry. Kazakhstanis. All right. Coming up here on Cudlow, I hate to break it to Lael Brainerd, Ms. Brainerd, who runs the National Economic Council, or Gene Sperling, another Biden economic advisor. But the Biden big government spending model is not going to work over time. All right. We'll talk about it with former president of the World Bank, David Malpass. And then we're going to report Nikki Haley's going after Trump. Former president is not too worried about it. The last Gianno Caldwell and Doug Collins, what they think. Nikki Haley made a speech today. I don't know what she was trying to say, prove, or anything like that. Getting clobbered in her home state. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Not Kazakhstan. Here, Kudlow, on the set. On the set. That's different than Kazakhstan. Thank you, Griff. We appreciate it. All right. So Biden economist, Lael Brainerd, Gene Sperling, others, they argued the Biden big government spending model is working. So let's ask David Malpass, former president of the World Bank, uh, what he thinks about it. You know, they're, they're crowing because they've got some couple good GDP numbers. Okay, 
But it's all done through government spending. You saw the CBO baseline. That's the Biden baseline. Um, what is it? Debt gets to almost 120 percent of GDP, which is a remarkable number. I mean, I don't usually care about that myself. But even that is a wake-up call. Right. So they're arguing more of the same. The, not, the 2021 bill work, you know the story. What's your response to them? bunch of logic problems with it. If you create a problem and then you fix it, are you going to take credit for fixing it? So on the supply side, to create the problem with regulations and then say, well, let's spend lots of government money on infrastructure to fix the problem. And then let's take credit for it, even though the national debt is going to be way through the roof. So that's a problem from the logic side. And then from the actual, how do you do it? How do you get government growing? They're really making the old Keynesian argument uh, that more spending always works, right. that you spend on chips, spend on... But at the same time, with the other hand, you're doing the LNG constraint on, on all of the middle of the country uh, that, that Europe needs. You know, there's many problems with cutting off the LNG exports from the U.S. Uh, Europe uh, uh, needs it, and it hurts them at a time when they need help uh, because they're socialist. And uh, people around the world are going to be burning wood and coal uh, to make up for the lost natural gas from the U.S. Yeah, the Flintstones, they go back in time 400 years. But, you know, um, Gene Sperling, whom we both know, and it's not personal. We, Gene's a nice fellow. But here's the point. Gene is saying back in the Obama days, coming out of the meltdown, financial meltdown, they didn't have enough government spending. Now they figured it out. And that's why that $1.9 trillion bill plus the infrastructure bill, plus the chips bill, plus all the spending bills. They put about $6 trillion on the board, and the debt is mounting. As I said, they're going to be up to about $120 trillion worth of debt. So he's saying we didn't do enough then, we've done enough now, and that's why we have a great economy. But why do, where does this end, this debt binge or spending deficits and debt. Where it, does it end? It, or how it, does it end? It doesn't for them. And so if you say, what was the baseline? What would have happened if you hadn't done those things? Mm -hmm. If instead you had reduced regulation or made it made it logical, which is not really what they're doing. They're putting lots of money into electric vehicles that people don't want to buy. Uh, and so if you had done it differently, wouldn't you uh, with this amazing country that we get to live in, uh, you would have come out with a better result. So you've got to really look at what what was your baseline if you hadn't done those policies? Uh, and I think it would have been a better outcome. Uh, and, and that's where we need to look going forward. The critical thing is uh, that, you know, there's this fiscal train wreck coming in 2025 where the debt limit runs out and the spending bills run out, the taxes go up, uh, and the regulations come really heavily burdening the economy. So what are you going to do to stop that and make it different? You can't run on the backward record because it leaves you exposed into the future. Well, one thing that they, besides not talking about deficits and debt, they don't talk about the lingering impact of the inflation which got to 9%. Now, the year-to-year -year inflation has come down, uh, somewhere between 3 and 4, I'll say. But the reality is, over three years, the inflation rate's up almost 20%. Meanwhile, weekly earnings wages are only up about 15%. So real wages have fallen. They, don't talk, they talk about real wages the last few months, but not over the three-year period. Middle-class working folks, David Malpass, can't afford to live in the Biden economy. I think that's the Achilles heel of this. 
It's what I'm from Michigan. So this is what you see going on. Yeah. So people say, uh, well, great. We got uh, uh, union uh, jobs to, because all of the electric vehicles are being required and we're losing our jobs. But does that play with the people? I think people see through that and they say, wait a minute, this is not a workable way to run uh, the run the economy. And you can't just say four more years of that approach. And I think that's going to that needs to be the core that uh, that if you can Keep regulating. Uh, you're going to lose jobs, and you can't paper it over with temporary spending. Big government socialism, to use Newt Gingrich's phrase. You know, you might get a couple of quarters of GDP growth through this government spending, but you're not getting business. You're not getting capex. You're not getting supply side. And the inflation lingers. And I think that's a problem. And I, if I'm you're sorry. sitting in, uh, if you're a dictator sitting outside the U.S., you look at this and you say, well, have at it because I'm going to beat you at that game. Ooh. I can, uh, I can outguide my economy. All right. I'll talk about that another time. Outguide. David Malpass, great friend. All right, folks, switching gears. Let's look at the 2024 race. Gianno Caldwell, Fox News political analyst. Doug Collins, former Georgia congressman. Gentlemen, thank you very, very much. Jono, I don't know if you um, had the pleasure of seeing Nikki Haley today. Uh, let's see. She refuses to drop out. We got some sound from Nikki Haley. Let me play it to you. Listen to it and weep. Hold on a second. Here it comes. I refuse to quit. South Carolina will vote on Saturday. But on Sunday, I'll still be running for president. I'm not going anywhere. So I just don't, you know, Jono, all right. I don't, she wants to run. She can run. But if you lose by 30 points in your home state, um, what's the mandate or what's the reason or what's the rationale behind your campaigns? At some point, you've got to come to grips with that, don't you? Well, recent polling out today, recently uh, Fox News reported the support of likely voters in South Carolina is going to be over 60 plus percent of likely voters. Now, mind you, Nikki Haley has been looking to recruit Democrats into the primary process to vote for her. And she had a little bit of success with that in New Hampshire. I don't imagine she'll have much success with that in South Carolina. And certainly after South Carolina and she loses there, we got Donald Trump at uh, over 60% in Michigan, 52% in California. And we're talking Super Tuesday numbers here. There is nowhere to go. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are some who were willing to support her, steal her donors. Democrats are putting money in, etc. But there's no way to go. At this point, she's attempting to be a spoiler. She cannot spoil it. Donald Trump is the nominee in my eyes. The polling says it. We've had multiple elections to confirm it. She needs to move aside. It's been nice. Participation trophy she gets, but she needs to move aside. You know, Doug Collins, by the way, good to see you. Um, At some point, you run these races. Look, she's running. You know, it's a free country. God bless her. She's running. But I never understood particularly what her rationale was for running. That's all. I mean, she makes a lot of charges against Donald Trump. Most of them are not true. Um, Nearly all of them are not true. But what in other words, if you want to vote for Nikki Haley, why vote for Nikki Haley? What's the point of it, Doug Collins? Well, Larry, it's good to see you as well. But I'm going to be a lot more blunt than you know was. I'm going to say, here's the problem. She's not a spoiler anymore. She has become a Democrat talking point. She has now become a de facto uh, spokesman for the Biden campaign because everything she says attacking Donald Trump, 
go straight to the Biden campaign website. You can see it, and you're going to see it fall in the fall mm. in Senate ads, governor ads, and presidential ads out of her mouth attacking Donald Trump. Her rationale for reasoning was that she was blown up into saying you're a new voice, somebody new in the party. But from early on, this has been over. The, part, the race is over now. The only per person that I it used is. to think that she just wanted to get to South Carolina, it's not get to South Carolina anymore, is to attack Donald Trump. Mm. It almost is beginning to look personal. Yeah, I also, I want to say, I think she made a big mistake breaking down and crying today, going into tears. I think that's not what you want foreign governments to see, not what you want foreign dictators to see. Uh, and I know a lot of women uh, here in the building who talk to me about it. Women in politics, great. Women in politics breaking down and crying, not great. That used to be a cardinal sin. I don't know how that's going to play. Jono, let me go back to one thing. Um, Laura... Uh, Ingram is going to do a town hall with Trump tonight. Laura Ingram is about as smart as you can get. Where do you think Mr. Trump's going to go? All right. I'm interested in this because I'm hoping, yes, he has a legitimate grievance with the fiasco in the court system and the legal system. But I also hope he stays on message on the border, on economic growth, on inflation, you know, on an America first foreign policy, on law and order, for example. I mean, the immigration has spread now and it's become a problem of lawlessness, Jano. I'm just hoping he stays on message. What do you think? I, I think and I agree with your assessment on Laura, by the way, our colleague. I'll tell you, I think for him, the border is going to be one of the biggest issues to talk about. Why? Because we've seen after poll after poll, immigration is what people are talking about. I also think as you use immigration, he should be speaking to the nation in some of these urban centers like New York mm -hmm. and certainly Chicago, where black voters are so pissed off with what they're seeing in their communities with the migrants and the support that they've been giving them over their needs, which have been suffering for many, many years. He should be speaking to them because these are potential purple states, especially right. in places like Chicago, where if you get 20 percent of Cook County, you get the whole state. In addition to that, prices. What does the consumer price index say? Mm. Uh, fact of the matter is many folks can't afford groceries like they used to. You got grandmothers who have to really choose between Madison and getting chicken. This is a serious set of circumstances, and I think Donald Trump is going to speak to those kitchen table issues that many uh, Americans are dealing with right now. Doug Collins, 20 seconds. Uh, Fannie Willis yep. ever tried to give you $15,000 in cash? You're from, <laughs> jo you're from Georgia. Huh? It's a I, don't need 20, I don't need 20 seconds on that one. No, that'd be a no for me. It's a, it's a cash economy, Doug. I thought you knew that. All right. It's a cash uh, economy. Yeah. We just missed it. No debit know? cards like in New York. Anyway, I'm sorry we always run out of time. You guys are great. You got to come back as soon as you can. Jano Caldwell and Doug Collins. And folks, please don't miss tonight's town hall of former President Donald Trump. That's Laura Ingram, 7 p.m. Eastern on Fox News. Up next, uh, Joe Biden's U.N. betrayal of Israel. All right, we're, uh, we're going to talk to Israeli special ops veteran Aaron Cohen. Whatever happened to unconditional surrender? Okay, why don't they promote unconditional surrender of Hamas? Aaron Cohen will help us out. I'm Kablo. So the question here is the United States betraying Israel in the U.N.? Tough question. Let's bring in Aaron Cohn, Israeli special ops veteran. Aaron, good to see you. Um, you the United States is going to have a resolution, you know this, um, calling for a ceasefire in exchange for the release of all hostages, which will never happen. Basically, they seem to want to stop Israel 
from uh, cleaning up in southern Gaza, particularly the town of uh, Rafah. And I just ask you, whatever happened to unconditional surrender? Israel should want unconditional surrender from Hamas. Why isn't the United States telling the Hamas uh, to surrender? I don't get any of this, uh, Aaron Cohn. Uh, well, yeah, uh, uh, like we say in Arabic, Larry. And what, uh, what I mean by that is uh, what happened is, is that uh, Biden didn't put the required pressure on the United Nations uh, in the way he framed this uh, to force Hamas to put down their weapons, uh, release the hostages, and uh, depopulate from those populated areas, stop fighting from those areas. And now what Israel's preparing to do uh, is get that leverage back, which we've talked about for months. And what we saw in the north of Gaza is going to be even worse in the south of Gaza. When Israel goes in there, there's about 15,000 uh, Hamas terrorists, militants waiting in there. There's six battalions, mm. uh, to put it into perspective. Israel's going to go in there. It's going to be a bloodbath. Uh, but Israel's tired of getting pushed around. They're getting tired of being pushed around by Biden. They're getting tired of being pushed around by Blinken and that entire administration. And Israel has gotten to the point where they're like, look, no one is going to tell us how we're going to self-determine. This goes all the way back to Golda in the 70s. Self-determination is Israel's right, and nobody can dictate. And Bibi knows that, and Israel is behind him. And that's what we're going to see right now. They've got some leverage. And by the way, Ismail Khani, I just flew to Egypt. Egypt let him in, but they're not going to let any Palestinians in. Mm. Makes, no, makes no sense to me. You know, Biden's hero, FDR, insisted on unconditional surrender of the uh, Nazis and the Japanese in World War II. I don't know why he won't apply that to Israel fighting for its life. Agreed. Agreed. I think that uh, I think what you're going to see is a lot of violence it. in the South here. But, uh, Larry, I'm with you 100 percent. That's what's happening. All right. You know, Israel has every right to demand unconditional surrender or destruction of Hamas. And the U.S., Biden should stay out of the way and not interfere. They are our great friends.